If you would, I would love for you to stand with me as we read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, we know we need you, but I wonder sometimes if we know that you love us. We know that you call us to love you and to serve you, but I wonder if we really feel the magnitude of the way that you have loved and served us. I pray that you would fill us in a new and fresh way this morning, that you would fill this place and fill these people and fill even myself with a fresh knowledge and gratitude for your love for us. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So there's a, a classic hymn called The Love of God. Some of, you, many, some of you might know it. Many of you probably love it. Here's how it ends. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. My goal today is to prove to you that that is scriptural and perhaps doesn't even do it justice to the love of God. I want to walk you through seven attributes of the love of God from this passage. I want to show you all of the, maybe not all of the facets, maybe not exhaust it, but I do want to show you just how wonderful God's love is. So seven attributes of the love of God. The first one here in verse 14, the love of God is paternal. The love of God is paternal. Paul says, for this very reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I fear that sometimes when we think about the love of God, we think of it as, an, as a sterile, lifeless, ethereal thing out there. We think of the love of God as something that we know is true. We know it belongs to us, but it's, it's ethereal and it's sterile and it's lifeless. That's not how Paul describes the love of God in this passage. He starts with the beginning of time, with a being. He starts with a father. He starts with a father who expresses love. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't just say, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father and then enters into his prayer. Why does he include the first part of verse 15? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He doesn't have to include that phrase. 
Is that just a throwaway line from him? Is he just making a nice little theological point? Every family happens to come from God. Now let's get on with the prayer. I actually think, I can't prove this, but I think there's something deeper going on. Paul knows that lots, lots, lots of people have problems with their dads. Paul knows that when people think about the love of a father, there's often a roadblock in the way and it's called their own dad. And Paul knows even though you have a family that may be awesome and may be messed up, whether you have a dad who showed you the love of God or you have a dad who did not show you the love of God, he's actually pointing us back to the one from whom everything good, all blessings come from. He's actually saying, I know that immediately you're going to think when I mention the words father, you're going to think of every family in heaven and on earth. You're going to think of all these families and there might be a roadblock for you. I'm not pointing you to that father. I'm pointing you to a greater and heavenly father. Paul is actually trying to show you the love that he wants you to experience is the love of a father who will never, ever fail you. He will never be aggressive towards you. He will never be apathetic towards you. He will never leave you to your own devices. God's love is paternal. He is a father who loves the snot out of you. And if you have kids, you know that the moment they show up, this is what's so crazy whenever I talk to new dads who have a wife who's waiting for the baby to come, she's, she's pregnant. Lots of new dads are fearful for that moment. And I say, oh, brother, you have no clue what kinds of emotions are about to come out of you. That was the most surprising part of being a dad is that I never knew how giddy I could be about another person. It was crazy to me how automatically I knew that I would love this child. I did not know I would get sappy, fun, giddy over this child. I'm not comparing necessarily God's love to our emotional love, but I am saying he is a father and whatever love his is, it's far greater than anything I experienced in that labor and delivery room. God's love is paternal and he loves you as his child. So the first thing we need to see about God's love is that it is not sterile. It is paternal. Number two, God's love is maximal. It's maximal. There's multiple mentions in this passage which show us that God is not minimal in his love to you. God is maximal in his love to you. Look at verse 16. Here's where Paul starts to pray for the Ephesians. And he says, I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. According to the riches of his glory. Now, here's something interesting. In the past 10 years, I work as, I've worked in enrollment here at the school. I've learned something about percentages, okay? If you take 0% of anything, what's the answer? We don't, have, we don't have math classes at Spurgeon College. What's the answer? Zero. Zero percent of anything is zero. But the math works in the opposite direction, doesn't it? Any percent of infinity is what? infinity. It says here that Paul is praying that God would give according to the riches of his glory. Just one chapter before we're told, or actually in chapter three, we're told that the riches of Christ are unsearchable. 
He has infinite riches at his, at his disposal. So even if you get a little percent of those riches, you have infinite riches at your disposal. He is wanting to give to you in a maximal way. You can have 1%, you can have 50%, you can have 89%. It doesn't matter. He is giving to you from his infinite riches according to his infinite riches. If someone in one of your churches makes $50 million and they say, I'm going to give according to what I just made, you'd be thrilled. Any percent of that, man, I'm pumped. God is giving to you according to his riches, which means you have infinite riches at your disposal. And the riches of his love are so wonderful. But that's not all we get in this passage. Look, verse 19, he wants us, uh, I'm sorry, verse 18, he wants us to know the love of Christ. He wants us to comprehend the love of Christ. And he says, may they have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Can you imagine being free floating in outer space? Remember the movie Gravity and Sandra Bullock is floating in outer space? It's a terrifying thought. And then imagine someone says to you, I want you to measure it. I want you to measure the length, the height, the depth, the breadth. That's what we're talking about here. You are floating in the infinite riches of Christ's love. And he says, I want you to comprehend how long and how deep and how wide and how broad this love is. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's so vast. His love is so maximal for you. And then he says in verse 19, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is his heart for you. He wants you to be filled with his fullness, maximal fullness. God is not stingy with you. God does not hold back from you. He is a father who is maximal towards you. He wants you to experience his utter fullness. How broad, how long, how high, how deep is this love? God's love is paternal. God's love is maximal. It's not minimal. It is maximal. Number three, God's love is supernatural. God's love is supernatural. It's at this point in the passage where I'll have to admit, a couple of years ago, I, I didn't quite see what's going on in this passage. Actually, Dr. Smith and I were at a retreat, and there was a gentleman named Jack Nicholson. Not that Jack Nicholson, not the one you think I'm talking about. He's a pastor in Tennessee. And he pointed out something about this passage to me that blew my mind. You have to kind of sift through the syntax a little bit, though. So let's look at this. What is the content of Paul's prayer? What does he pray for these Ephesians? He says, I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Okay, so Paul is praying for power. He's praying that you would be strengthened, which means you're weak. You are too weak. You don't have the power. He needs to pray for you that you would have supernatural strength. Strength to do what? If you think that he's praying that you would have strength to do incredible feats for the kingdom of God, you're wrong. If you think that he's praying that you're too weak and you need strength to walk in holiness even, that's not what he's praying for. 
What is it that you are too weak to do, Christian? Have you seen it in the passage? Here's what you are too weak to do. Look in verse 18. He picks up his line of thought and he says, essentially, I bow my knees before the Father. Verse 16, that according to his riches, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. And then in verse 18, he picks it up and he says that you may be, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and height and depth and breadth of the love of God. What is it that you are too weak to do? What is it that you in your own natural, puny-sized brain cannot comprehend? You can't comprehend his love. This is the problem of the human soul. We're blinded to what Christ has done at the cross. We are absolutely separated from God's love at the cross. We can't see it. We're too weak. We're too puny. God is wanting to put a 700 horsepower engine on our little tyke mind and we can't handle it. God is wanting us and our little sponge to absorb the entire ocean and we can't do it. We're standing at the buffet line. We have our little plate and we can't eat it all. We are too weak for this kind of love. We're too weak. I almost want to have some preacher hyperbole here, and I almost want to say every problem of sin in the Christian's life is because you are too weak to comprehend this kind of love. And so Paul knows I have to pray for these people. I'm not praying that they would be holy. I'm not praying that they would do wonderful feats in the kingdom. I'm praying simply that they would comprehend the love of the Father. Man, if you start to wrap your mind around this kind of love, the love that stands on the porch as you are feeding with the pigs, the love that stands on the porch as you are chasing after the prostitutes, the love that stands on the porch as you are searching for something else to click on. If you understand this kind of love, it changes everything. He doesn't even have to pray for holiness. He doesn't even have to pray that you would do wonderful things because he knows if you get this kind of love, It changes everything. But you can't do it on your own. You need supernatural help. God's love is not normal. It is supernatural. Number four, God's love is spiritual. Did you notice in verse 19, he's praying that we would be able to comprehend the length, the height, the breadth, the depth of the love of God. And then he says, I pray that you would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. We are in a wonderful place here, friends. This place teaches all kinds of wonderful truths about the God of love, the God of grace. But there is a knowledge that surpasses this kind of knowledge. There is a depth that surpasses the depth that you go to with G.K. Beale. You might think, man, I need to understand, I need to know the love of God. I'm going to read D.A. Carson's The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, and then I'll know it. Friends, there's a, there's a knowledge that's underneath the knowledge. It's a spiritual knowledge. Of course, it's not disconnected from our minds. We use our minds in service to the glory of God, but you have to be filled with a different kind of knowledge, a knowledge that surpasses knowledge, Paul says in verse 19. There is a knowledge deeper than knowledge, 
Every one of you have it, have it because you know Jesus. And Paul is praying that you would go deeper into that kind of knowledge, a spiritual knowledge of the love of God. And I would call it a spiritual reception. The first challenge of the Christian life is not to give, but to receive. There is a knowledge deeper than knowledge. There's a grasping that transcends your grades. There's a comprehension that's greater than your quizzes. There is a knowledge deeper than your knowledge. You have to have spiritual knowledge of what Christ has done for you. Sam mentioned um, us working together as husbands to know and love our wives. A couple years ago, this is six or seven years ago, Mallory and I were just going through a tough time. Um, We had some, it it was deeper than conflict. There were some impasses in our marriage. And so we went to see a counselor. This counselor was wonderful. He opened up the scriptures with us. He he walked through us, walked with us through a couple of issues in in our marriage. And there was one point in our counseling session where he asked Mallory to share about something that I do in our marriage that really hurts her. So she started sharing. She started sharing about how this this thing that I do in our marriage is just painful for her. He said, okay, Camden, I want you to respond to her. So I started to respond. I said, okay, so what you're telling me is in this situation, this happens. And he said, no, 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 stop. You just asked for more information, but she gave you pain. I want you to respond to her pain thought, who the heck are you? Like, what? get off my back, man. I had no clue what to do. And so I, I, I said, okay, so what you're saying is, and he said, no, you heard what she said. Respond to her pain. I did not know how to respond to her. Every time she spoke from her heart, I spoke from my head. And I think that that's a great analogy for the way we approach the love of Jesus. He's speaking to us. He is giving to us a gospel kind of spiritual love. And we want to say, okay, what's that passage say again? The first call to you is to receive from him at a spiritual deeper level, to know that he wants to fill you with all of his fullness. Now, again, getting in the books is not bad, but if you don't watch it, the books will be an excuse to actually avoid the heart level, spiritual level transformation he wants to fill you with. God's love is spiritual. There is a knowledge deeper than knowledge. Number five, God's love is internal. God's love is internal. Did you notice the language throughout this passage? Verses 16 and 17. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, where? In your inner being. In your inner being. So that Christ may dwell where? In your hearts through faith. We often think of God's love as something external. We think of God's love as something to give to people, which is true. We want to show the love of Christ to people. It's something that we show on the outside with our bodies, with our actions, all true. But here he's talking about something that's internal, that's happening in our hearts, that's happening in our inner being. This is the same language, the same word even, that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. That though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. One of the biggest temptations, one of the biggest traps, probably I would imagine in your ministry, 
is going to be so external focused, you're going to be so external focused that you fail to receive the spiritual love of Christ on the inside. That you fail to walk in true faith, looking at the scriptures and finding places where you just feel like, God, if you don't help me, I'm not doing it. I'm not walking there. I'm not going to obey in that place unless I have the faith in the love of Christ that you call me to. I think most people who struggle in ministry are so busy on the outside that they fail to abide in the vine. He is the vine, we are the branches, and we never get away from that reality. Never will we get away from that reality. If you want to know what the hardest part of my Christian life is, it's this. I get so busy doing things for the kingdom that I fail to just be a citizen in the kingdom. I get so busy doing things for other people that I fail to just abide in the vine and recognize apart from him, I can do absolutely nothing. All this stuff that I'm doing is completely in vain unless the vine is filling me with nutrients that I can then give to others. He wants to fill you with his love in your inner being and renew you day by day. I mentioned Jack Nicholson. He used this illustration of this passage of a tree that is absolutely beautiful. You can see on the outside its fruit. You can see that it's falling acorns. You can see that it's producing peaches. And then one day a storm comes and it completely topples over. And what do you find on the inside? A completely rotten core. Have you all ever seen this? Actually, if you were around long enough, some of you are maybe fifth year seniors. In 2019, there was a tree right over here by the dorm. One of you may have even had your car hit by this tree. Tree rot has affected you in more ways than one. There was a tree that toppled over. I took a picture of it. On the outside, you would have known nothing was wrong. And on the inside, it was completely rotten. My friends, you do not want tree rot, tree rot in your spiritual life. On the inside, on the inner man, you must be renewed day by day. And he does it through his spirit, his paternal love, giving you more and more of your, his spirit in your inner being. I fear that some of you are setting up patterns and rhythms and habits that will continue on into your ministry. And right now you're getting great grades. You have great fruit on the outside. There may even be people one to Christ because of your actions. Praise be to the Lord. Christ is being preached. I don't fear for those disciples. I fear for you because there are habits and rhythms in your life where you are separating yourself from the vine. Friends, I pray that this passage would open up your eyes to the need to be renewed day by day by his spirit on the inner man. God has set up his dwelling with you. Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. We, uh, many of you know, the, the faculty got to go to Israel this past summer. It was fascinating. We were at Caesarea on the beach. One thing you see, the first thing you see, is Herod's palace dwelling on the beach, this beautiful view of the coast, this beautiful view of the Mediterranean Sea. You know what else is not around Herod's palace? Other houses. The lords of the earth separate themselves from the muddy, nasty, stinky people that they're called to lead. You know, where, you know where Christ sets up his palace? Right with you. Never let that truth 
escape you. Never let that truth be distant from you. He has set up his dwelling in your heart. He lives with you. He lives in you. Christ's love is internal. Number six, God's love is ecclesial. There's a big theological word for you. God's love is ecclesial. Up until now, I would say, if I were to critique my own sermon, I would say it's just been very individual up until now. This is me and the Lord walking step by step, which, by the way, you can't get apart from that. There is an incredibly individual component to our faith all throughout the scriptures. But we are never separate from the church. Did you notice this one beautiful little phrase in the middle of verse 18? Paul prays that we would have strength to comprehend the love of God. But he says, with all the saints. You can't do this on your own. Not only do you have too too weak of a mind to understand God's love, if you are left to yourself apart from the saints, if you isolate yourself, you will never comprehend his love. It must be with all the saints. You must show the saints God's love and you must receive God's love from the saints. God's love is ecclesial. We must be connected not only to the vine, but to the whole tree. This is what Paul says just one page over in Ephesians 4. He says, Ephesians 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church will build you up in love. Your friends, your Christian friends will build you up in love. You cannot isolate yourself from them. You must plunge yourself deeper into the church and into the family of God if you want to be built up in love. And as you are built up, so you will build up the rest of the people around you as well. They need you and you need them. God's love is ecclesial. It's communal. It's meant to be done together. You have to have people around you as you walk through this life. I would imagine, just a guess, I would imagine that some of you Spurgeon College students, this is your first time away from home, and you just feel awfully lonely. Perhaps home is 15 minutes away and you still feel lonely. Perhaps home is 15 hours away and you feel really lonely. God's love is familial. God's love is ecclesial. Rely on the churches in this city. Rely on the people around you. He can see you through the loneliest, darkest times. And oftentimes the way he does that is by bringing people around you to take you to Taco Bell. I would happily take you to Taco Bell any day you want. Any excuse to go to Taco Bell is a good excuse. You need people. You need the church. You need friends. Do not let Satan lie to you and think that if you haven't had deep community in three weeks or in three months, this is a lost cause. That's just not true. My first year in college, I did not find my friend group until February. It took me months after Christmas break before I felt like, man, these people are my people. And now whenever I go on vacations, it often is with Alex and Camry Worley, the guy I went to the Passion Conference with February, my freshman year of college. 
You've got to push through it, and you've got to continue to find people who can pour into you the love of God. You need it. You need the church around you. And finally, number seven, God's love is incarnational. God's love is incarnational. Look at how this passage ends. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. What? To him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. If you don't have like, a, like a, an eye blink moment, like, hold on, what did he say? You're missing it. I fear that a lot of us, we start to understand the vastness of the gospel. We start to understand the love of God and how incredible it is. And we see how desperate our sin is. We see how desperate our suffering is. And we see how defiled we are. And this lie of, state, of Satan starts to creep in to think, man, he really is incredible. And he is. He must not be able to use me. I mean, like, what am I going to do? I'm so weak. I don't have any talents. I don't have any gifts. There's nothing he's going to be able to do with me. Of course he would use him. Of course he would use her. I can see why he would do that with them. I don't know what in the world I'm going to be doing. God's love is incarnational through you, through the power at work in you. And he's going to do not just little things, it says Paul is praying that he would do far more than we could ask or think. You think of it, he'll do more than that. You imagine it, nope, not good enough. God is bigger than that. He's more maximal than that. Far more abundantly than all that we ask or all that we think. He desires to work through you. And isn't that just the story of God's glory? God chose to show the most magnificent, beautiful glory in a manger of a peasant girl. God chose to show the most magnificent, beautiful glory on the Roman cross with rusty nails and a tree that had been cut down and crushed. God chose to show his glory in the incarnation. He chose to show his glory at the very moment where it felt like all hope had been crushed where weakness was on display, where Christ's talents as a human were of no use. He wasn't using his talents. He was using his weakness. He was using his surrender. God's love for this world goes forward through weakness. God's love in this world goes forward through the incarnation, through measly human weakness like you. I'm not here to affirm that you're all that and a bag of chips. You're not. You're not. And the person that you think is, they're not. And yet he chooses to use us anyway. He will do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think because his glory, his love is incarnational. That's how he chose to set up the world. He gets more glory through weakness than through strength. God's love is paternal. It's not sterile. God's love is not minimal, it is maximal. God's love is not normal, it is supernatural. 
God's love is not rational. It is spiritual. God's love is not external. It is internal. God's love is not individual. It is ecclesial. And though his love is not human, it is incarnational. He longs, he desires, and he will use you. He will. To God be the glory in the church, in you, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I would love if you would join me in praying this prayer on our knees. I probably wouldn't do it. I probably wouldn't get us on our knees if the passage didn't say that that's what Paul does. So why don't we follow in Paul's footsteps? Why don't we follow in Paul's knees and get on our knees and pray this prayer together? We bow our knees before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, that you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth of this love? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of your presence. Now to you who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think, according to the power at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.